My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. I'm coming to you from the Hickson campus of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we'd love to have you come and visit us. But if you're not in the area, please go to OurSundaySchool.com to see all of the resources we saw in class. Now, you just had to go and do that, didn't you? They're back. They're back. They're back. Woohoo! What a good day. Come on. Come on. So good to have y'all back. Well, it was already a good day because we got to listen to the Beatles before class starts. And then the bandies walk in. So it's like, what in the world? This is awesome. All right. So, hey, y'all. This is uh, week one in our uh, multi-week series on Jude. So if you can uh, find the book of Revelation and then turn one page left, uh, you will land on Jude. And I think you will very likely enjoy this series. So. Uh, there is a lot of stuff in today's lesson that I'm not going to be talking about uh, out loud. I think we may be frozen. There we go. It's cool. Dave has this really awesome button on the projector that will freeze whatever on the screen, which is just really spectacularly simple technology, but I like it quite a bit. Uh, so if you want to follow along with the uh, teacher notes that I'm teaching from this morning, you can go to OurSundaySchool.com. Click on the Read tab, and then uh, the appropriate uh, links are there for you. So let's talk about Jude for just a second. So Jude is a bit different. Uh, it's a very, very small little letter. But if you go through the Scriptures, so you've got the big section in the Old Testament, the big section in the New Testament. You've got the Gospels, the history, uh, and then this huge section of Paul's letters. So from Romans to Philemon, uh, all of Paul's writings there. And then you have this section of letters that really don't have a particular audience in mind. Uh, So the word that we use to describe them is general. That's your first blank for your handout, the general epistles. And that starts with uh, Hebrews uh, all the way and ends with Jude. And then you have the uh, apocalyptic literature revelation at the end. Uh, But that's what this big section is. So if you ever wondered why the books of the New Testament are in the order that they're in, well, that's why. We put the Gospels to tell the story of Jesus, to tell the story of uh, Peter and Paul uh, in Acts, uh, and then all of Paul's writings, and then the rest, and the rest are basically structured in order from largest to smallest. So that's why they're in the order that they're in. So Jude gets stuck at the end of the general epistles, but that doesn't mean that we should uh, belittle or think lightly. Uh, So your next question on your handout is, what is Jude about? So how do we find out what a book of the Bible is about? We read it. Yes. We do not read a commentary, Josh Landers. I appreciate that uh, known incorrect answer. It's good to have those once in a while. So let's read through uh, the little letter that Jude wrote to find out what it is about. Now, I will, I will tell you, you, you might feel a bit... Uh, tossed around as you read through Jude because he is going to oscillate back and forth between them and us and them and us and them and us. So I'd just be listening uh, for that. And then I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a math question at the end. I'm going to ask you, what is Jude's favorite number? 
So be listening for what Jude's favorite number is as we go through. So the letter written by Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some, have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. I love passages of Scripture that end with an amen. There's a sense of finality and, yep, we got it. We're finished with that. 
So I'm going to ask you in a minute uh, what Jude's favorite number is, but I'm not going to ask you yet. So I want you to be thinking about what you heard. So the, the question, next question on your handout is, who was Jude? Well, we think he was likely a, a younger half-brother of who? Jesus. That's right. Now, some of you said James, and that is very likely true as well. Uh, there's a couple lists of Jesus' uh, brothers in Scripture. Um, Matthew 13:55 is one of them. Uh, somebody flip over to Matthew 13:55 real quick. Who's got it? Matthew's easy to find, actually. <clears throat> it's like the. You got it, Skip. Awesome. Go. 13:55. Yes, sir. Then they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son, and we know. So who's the carpenter's son that we might be referring to in the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus, all right. Just want to make sure we know who he is. All right. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Do you know Jesus had brothers? You know he had a bunch of brothers? He did. Now, here's your, here's your really easy theology question of the day. Were they older brothers or were they younger brothers? This really, really matters, okay? They are what? Younger brothers, right. Did you know he had sisters too? Yes, there's a, there's a section there as well that talks about sisters. So give me the order of their names again. James? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All right, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All right, Mark 6.3. Who's got Mark 6.3? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Mark 6, 3. Who's got it? I hear more pages over here, but Dave's got it. All right. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. That's what's yours, right, Skip? All right. Is this not the carpenter's son of Mary and the brother of James? Um, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Oh, wait. Time out. Is that the same order? No. 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 All right. So, typically... And this is, this is like really open-handed, likely stuff, okay? Typically, you list brothers in order of age, right? So we think James was the oldest younger brother. And Judas, it's listed as Judas in both of your verses, right? All right, you know another way to spell Judas in Greek? Jude? Why would, why would you think we'd want to call him Jude? Yeah, after what happened with Judas Iscariot, right? We, we want to draw a clear distinction. The, the Greek word is exactly the same. Judah, Judas, and Jude are all the same word in Greek. So the English translators call this letter Jude, just so that everybody understands this is not a letter written by Judas Iscariot, right? Because would, would we value a letter written by Judas Iscariot? Well, it would be interesting to read, but it would, we wouldn't really call it canon, right? I mean, this would be a real problem for us at this point. All right, so we, we know he's a, a, a brother of Jesus. We're not sure if he's the youngest or the next to youngest, but he's certainly a little brother to Jesus. So put yourself in his shoes for just a hot second. Jesus is your older brother, the man who never sinned, the teenager who had a perfect teenage series of years, the one who kept the law flawlessly, the one who at 12 was teaching in the synagogue. Anybody have an older brother? 
So if your older brother was preaching a sermon in your church at age 12, do you, do you feel like a, just a, perhaps a bit of an underachiever? <laughs> just a little bit, right? So, so let's just make sure we understand where he is at this point. And then in uh, Jude, how does Jude introduce himself? In the letter here. The brother of who? Now, if you're going to brag about being somebody's brother, who are you going to brag about being the brother of? Like, I'm going to brag about being the brother of Jesus. But he didn't brag about being Jesus' brother. He brags about being Jesus' slave. Now, there's other parts of the New Testament that talk about how Jesus' family his brothers and sisters did not follow after him before the resurrection, right? Because they knew something was different, but they didn't believe. So imagine this. You are the Messiah, and your own family is not following after you. Perhaps just slightly frustrating. Right? Rejected by his own family. But I, I would argue that Jude came a very long way in his faith to the point of calling himself Jesus' slave. All right, now, so here's my, my next question, and I want to make sure that I, I go back and I point you to the general epistles here, the general letters. Jude's at the end. So where was Jude when he wrote his letter? Do we have any indication in this text? Did you pick up on any landmarks or cities or people he shouted out to or, hey, sell, tell so-and-so hello? or any, we, we don't know. We really don't know. Okay. Who was he writing to? Does it explicitly state? What would you have to have had a really good understanding of to even remotely understand Jude's letter, though? Truth and what? The Old Testament, right? He mentions Enoch. He mentions Cain. He mentions Korah. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? If you're a Gentile... And you get a letter, and you're unfamiliar with the story of the Bible, and somebody drops the name Enoch, and some of you are going, wait, Enoch's in, the Old Enoch's in the Old Testament, yes. Right? Like, these are not well-known stories. He is not talking about David and Goliath. He's not talking about the parting of the Red Sea. He's not This is Enoch. And not just Enoch, but Enoch's prophecy. So let me ask you to turn in the Old Testament to where Enoch's prophecy is. Thank you for turning there. It's not there. You're like, wait, what does that mean? Well, it wasn't in the Old Testament. It was in another uh, religious text that was not part of the Old Testament canon. It's not one of these books, but the book was called First Enoch. And if you've ever read it, it's a fascinating read. Uh, but it's not all perfectly, flawlessly true. Most of it's very helpful historically, but this is where uh, Jude quotes from. So Jude references a whole bunch of stuff in the Old Testament, and he quotes some non-canonical Old Testament religious works. So if you think Jude is writing to Gentiles, he is the worst communicator ever if he is writing to Gentiles. This is just me. This would be like taunting someone for what they didn't know about the Bible. Right? And that would just, that's just wrong. So we're, we're pretty sure he's writing to some type of Jewish believers 
Um, and then the question of uh, when was Jude written? Um, Jude seems to be uh, refuting something that people misunderstood about Paul's teachings on grace. Was that you can take grace and just go as far as you can with it. So it, we think, we think that it was written far enough in the future after Paul wrote that Paul's writings were circulated well and that somebody had an opportunity to screw up the application of them. And we also know that he was bounded by whenever 2 Peter was written. Because if you've ever read 2 Peter, it, like 2 Peter contains Jude inside of it. So Peter is referencing Jude. And we know 2 Peter was written in the mid-60s. And we, Paul's writings were in circulation by the mid... No, this is not 1960s, right? This is 0060s. And Paul's writings were in circulation in the mid-50s. So somewhere between the mid-50s and the mid-60s is when Jude was written. So if you're Jesus' younger brother, possibly the youngest, at that point in time, the gap between children was almost always two to three years because there was a nursing period, and then you'd have your next child, and you just it was like a baby factory was the idea. Uh, infant mortality rate was about 50% at this time. So we know that there were at least uh, five named sons of Mary and at least two daughters, uh, which implies... Just statistically speaking, she probably had about 14 or 16 kids, right? Some of you are like, what? Um, just the way this math works. Um, so Jude could have been, he could have been 20 years, 25 years younger than Jesus. We're not exactly sure how old he was, but he was certainly at least uh, 10 to 12, probably 14 years younger than Jesus at, at minimum. So he's in his late teens, early 20s at the time of the crucifixion. Doesn't believe at that point. Resurrection occurs. I'm on board now, <laughs> right? Because I, I, I know this is the same man because I grew up with him, right? So he's totally come full circle. So uh, what are we going to be looking at in this series? All right, so a couple different things. Uh, today, we're actually going to cover two different sections in your New King James Version. So the greeting to the called and contend for the faith. And then we're going to spend two weeks on the old and new apostates because there's, there's so much Old Testament to teach just to understand how Jude applies it in the New Testament. So probably July the 1st will just be explaining the Old Testament works so that we can understand how he's using them on July the 8th. Does that make sense? Because trying to do all that at once would be a... It's like a two-hour Sunday school class, and you would, you would not hang out with me that long. So that's where we're going. All right, so today's lesson is about the first four verses. Uh, so from Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother James, all the way down to the end of verse four. So any literary or structural observations? So just from a purely structural perspective, today's text includes the greeting of the letter and the purpose of the letter, right? So Jude is, is writing here to combat these false teachers that have come in. Uh, he's going to expand these issues later in Jude, but these false te teachers are living sinfully, and this is this disconnect between what Jude sees and what uh, they are saying is is a real problem. So I told you I was going to ask you what Jude's favorite number was. Anybody got a guess on what his favorite number is? Darla votes three. I got ones. Okay. Darla, why would you say three? No, you don't have to. It's always 
than I. Yeah. Uh, because Jude communicates things in sets of threes over and over. And, and once I tell you that, you're going to go back and you're going to read Jude again. And you're like, oh, that's like good grief. Did he have any? Yeah, there's one time he does something in, in a, a set of four. But pretty much literally everything else is sets of threes. Um, so be looking out for the threes. And, and here's why I bring this up. I don't bring this up just to be cute because it's a number. I bring this up because when you read works like Romans, and Paul goes on a, you know, so we get the Romans 1 through 8, and then we go Romans 9 through 11. And he has these chapter-long excursions where he goes and he gives an example of something. We, many times, will forget what the actual point he's trying to make is because he's gone so far down off what we consider a rabbit trail. And then he comes back and he connects these points three or four chapters later, and we're like, what in the world's going on here? Well, Jude is kind of a microcosm into that way of communicating. It's, I'm going to make this statement, I'm going to give you several examples, and I'm going to make another statement, I'm going to give you several examples, and if we, and, and I want to be very careful how I say this, if you pull the examples out of Jude and only look at the principal statements, it's a, actually a cleaner, easier way to understand what the big picture is, but you lose the impact of how these truths have been true over all of time. Does this make sense? You with me here? All right, good. That was like version 9 of that explanation, trying to get that straightforward. So he communicates in threes, and I want you to be looking out for these threes because they're all over the place. So uh, what are the most repeated words? And this is for all of, uh, all of Jude. I think this is on your second page of your handout. Is that right? Yep. All right, so Jude communicates in threes. What are the most communicated, repeated words? So we got them, there, themselves, and your blank is they. Did you hear the they and the them? It's like those people do things like this, right? And then the you, your, and yourselves, there's 17 of those. So there's, there's 21 of them and 17 of you, which is why you get this feeling of like, okay, if, if I, I know where we're at, but we keep rocking back and forth between them and us and them and us. And Jude is the poster child for Seth Godin's quote, uh, people like us do things like this. And I don't, I don't know if you read any Seth Godin. He's a, a raging uh, pagan, uh, but he's fantastic at business uh, text. And I was reading through Jude the last couple of weeks, and Godin's quote kept coming up in my head, and I was thinking, that's pretty good. But so you got this they and the you. And the thing I will challenge you on is make sure you know which side he's talking to all the way through, or you can get extraordinarily confused. Now, the good thing is he makes it really, really obvious which side he's talking to because of the pronouns he uses. But this is, this is where he's at. So let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about some of the words here. What do the words mean? All right, so we've got Jude. Now, we already talked about this. It can be Judah or Judas or Jude. Um, it means, his name means he shall be praised. It's a bond servant, and your blank here is a slave. It's, it's literally just a slave. It's a, a broad set of types of slaves. So a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So let's talk for just a second about who James was. So who was, was James important in the New Testament church? Yes. This, you should like shout the yes to this. Who ran the Jerusalem church? Anybody know? James ran the Jerusalem church. And the Jerusalem church was kind of home base. It was the, the central location where sometimes uh, meetings and decisions were made. The apostles would come together and discuss and debate. Uh, and 
James was the guy in charge. Uh, huge, huge responsibility. Uh, isn't it a wonderful thing? God didn't leave him alone in this responsibility, but indwelled him with the Holy Spirit, which is what he always does. So Jude really has two claims to fame here. He could either say, I'm the brother of Jesus, or he could say, I'm the brother of James. Now, here's my question for you. What type of a brother was he to Jesus? So in, in today's vernacular, we would say he's a half-brother, right? Because they shared the same mom, but did they share the same dad? There's a sense in which yes is true as well. By adoption, that's exactly right. Thank you. How cool is that? He is both Jesus' half-brother and full-brother. There are not many people in history that that applies to. <laughs> uh, Dave and Skip just read the full list of who that applies to. <laughs> right? Oh, and the women, too. We assume that they were believers as well, because there were far more women that followed Jesus than men, uh, as is true today. Uh, so, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So he is, he is stating a tremendous degree of relationship here right up the bat. To those who are called or appointed... Uh, sanctified, hagiazo. This is the, uh, the Hagia Sophia, the, uh, these holy things. Uh, the blank there is the perfect passive participle. We do a lot more stuff with grammar now. Just, just saying, okay? <laughs> You're going to be a happy place then. So perfect means it occurred in the past and the results are continuing uh, till now. So this sanctification process, uh, it, it, it's participle, so it's, it's going as well. So this sanctified, it continues on, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved, so this is also the perfect passive participle. Because you could, you could sanctify something and then not preserve it, and it, well, that's not very helpful. Right? So you, you really need both. And you certainly wouldn't want to be preserved in an unsanctified state. Oh, man, that's just, that's horrible. This is why death is a gracious act of a loving God to a believer. Because to continue forever, imagine this, you never die, right? To continue forever in a broken body is cruelty. Like, that's just, that's just the way this is. Uh, so, preserved and sanctified. This word preserved means, uh, your next blank is to detain, to detain, D-E-T-A-I-N, uh, in custody. So let me ask you a question. Have, has the word detain been in the news lately? All right, I'm not going to get into politics. I just want to ask you a simple question. Who's in charge? The one doing the detaining or the one being detained? Who's in charge? The one doing the detaining, right? Who's doing the detaining here? God is. Yes, that's right. It's because he's in charge. <laughs> right? So let's all just... It's a beautiful reminder that we did not do the sanctifying. We did not do the preserving. God is doing all of that, and he's doing that in Jesus Christ, which is beautiful. Right? So mercy, this uh, tender mercy or this compassion, verse 2, peace. 
This is the idea of to be set at one again. That's your next blank. To be set at one again. And love. Agape. Now, and love is actually very unusual to show up in a, uh, a prayer uh, early on in a letter in the New Testament. This is a, is a very unusual thing. And so why would I say this is a prayer? Because of the multiplied. Look at multiplied. Eris, passive, optative. That optative is a wish. Remember, so there's the indicative, which is just a statement of fact. There's the subjunctive, which is, I believe Jim will end this Sunday school lesson soon, and we will go to worship. Right? Like, you have that hope. The, op- <laughs> the optative is, I hope that Jim will end early today. Don't put your hope there. That is not going to be the way this works. Okay? So this is a, a wish or a prayer uh, so he's praying for mercy and peace and love to be multiplied or to be increased to you, to the listeners here. And then we come to verse 2. He's done with this kind of beginning of his introduction, and then he comes to verse 3, and he says, Beloved. So immediately my brain goes back to Third John, where this beloved, 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 you see this many times in Jude as well. Uh, While I was very diligent or very speedy uh, to write to you concerning our common salvation. And this word for common is koinos. Um, and if you know a little bit of Greek, you, you may hear me say koinos, and that sounds really close to what? Koinonia, right, this community, right? So this word koinos means shared by all or several. So this is something that is, it is not unique to one person, and I am supremely thankful that it is not, right? What if salvation was just for one person? Ugh. It still would be an incredible gift, but odds are we're not the one, (laughs) right? If you just think about all of the population of human history, odds are we would not be the one. But this is a common, a shared salvation, soteria. This is this rescuing, this safety, this deliverance. Uh, I found necessary to write to you exhorting. And and I I have a lot of favorite words, but this is one of my favorite Greek words, parakaleo. Um, And this is the present active participle, which means it is repeatedly exhorting. This is not something that he did once. This is over and over and over and over. Um, So, David, Jr., could you join me up here for a second? Uh, This is something that my brother does extraordinarily well, and I was so hopeful that you would be here this morning so I could do this. So what does exhorting look like? So look at the definition. To call near. Did I just call him near? Yes, I did. To invite, to invoke, to comfort, uh, to entreat, to pray. You can't do parakaleo from a distance. It is not the way it works. You can send somebody a text message and that's fine, but this is different. And buddy, it is so good to have you back. Thank you. Like, your daddy's awesome. Yeah. All right? But I'm glad you're back. Because he needs somebody to keep him in line. All right? (laughs) (laughs) So this is exhortation. This is, I have a message to deliver, and I'm going to deliver it closely. Right? Because I could shout out, you're a lion, egg-sucking dog across the room, but that would be... Be true, too. But uh, (laughs) slightly inappropriate, right? But I could mute the mic and whisper that in your ear, and that would have a different communicative approach, right? All right, good. All right, good deal. Thank you, brother. Bandies are back. All right, so exhorting you to do what? It's the longest Greek word ever. Uh, 
not even going to try to pronounce that one. I've practiced it all week long. It's really crazy long. If you, what's that? Say it again. That's it right there. That's exactly the way the guy on the internet said it. <laughs> Yay. Um, and if you, if you cross off the, ep, the EP, which just means around, uh, the A-G-O-N-I-Z, what does that look like? Agonize, that's your next blank. This is the root word for our modern word, agonize. It means to struggle, to earnestly contend for. This is not something that you do uh, like, oh, everything's great. I'm just going to be gently contending for this. There's no gentleness about this. And he is repeatedly exhorting them, encouraging them to earnestly contend for the faith. And the faith is that thing that we believe, which was once for all delivered or surrendered and trusted to the saints, to the Hagios. Verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. So, parais do know. Parais do know. This is the aorist active indicative. It means to settle in alongside. And you've probably experienced this at some point in your life. Some uh, parasite. A first cousin of this word is the root word of our modern English word parasite. It's a very similar concept. To settle in alongside, to lodge stealthily, to creep in unawares. Uh, Plutarch uh, used this word to describe the decline of good laws and the stealthy substitution of inferior ones. So we have a good governmental structure in place and it slowly declines and a bad governmental structure gets in place. It's what the word... This is not an overnight thing. This is a very slow process. So these men have crept in unnoticed. So why would they not be noticed? Very subtle. Their error might not have been huge, right? Maybe not at the beginning. They sure do. One of the commentators that I read said uh, uh, they got into the sheepfold not by going through the door, but by climbing over some wall. <laughs> I thought, interesting visual. They crept in unnoticed, who were long ago marked out. This is the perfect passive participle. So this is something that was written down previously, that it continues to be true. You know, there are plenty of prophecies that Jesus himself, the apostles, made about wicked wolves are coming into the church and this is going to be the way this works. They were marked out long ago uh, that this, for this condemnation, this crema. And if you remember our series in Romans, crema was a word that we just got waterboarded with for the first three chapters of Romans. Crema and crena. That it just, I saw this word a few weeks ago and I was like, oh man, I'm twitching again from Romans here. Uh, this condemnation, this is the decision against uh, for a crime. These ungodly, these irreverent men who turn grace. And this word turn is present active participle, so it's repeatedly turn. They repeatedly turn the grace of our God into lewdness. So this is not a... That there was, remember that one time somebody made a mistake theologically and this was a problem. No, 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 no. This is over and over and over and over again. And this is present act. So they are currently doing it right now. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. And uh, 
This word for lewdness means licentiousness. So work that one into conversation at some point this week. There's a fun one. It's, uh, uh, Aristotle uh, defined licent in his work ethics. He defined licentiousness as unrestrained vice. So this is just anything goes behaviorally, right? So that so think about the 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 change here. So they're taking the grace of God, which explicitly is not anything goes, and turning it into anything goes. This is a big chasm to jump. But you just have to take a very nuanced view of grace, and you can get there real quick. So while it is behaviorally a huge shift, intellectually, it's just a very small thing. Well, God's grace covers that, so why should I worry about it? See how simple that was? Just like that, and you get there. Anything goes. Yeah, unrestrained vice. There you go. That's what it would look like. So what is Jude calling them out for? He's calling them out for their behavior here. So they turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny, and this is present uh, participle, they repeatedly deny, they repeatedly contradict or disavow. This word disavow, I think of uh, Mission Impossible, right? So when he, gets his, when he gets his message, if you fail, if you're discovered, the United States government will disavow any knowledge of you, right? You're on your own. So they're saying you're on your own, to the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Josh, what's the Greek word for Lord? <laughs> Put you on the spot there, didn't I? Curios. Remember? You remember that now? Curios, that's right. KY, that's right. Curios. That's not what the first word is. The first word is despotes. It means a despot. That's your next blank. D-E-S-P-O-T. This is an absolute ruler. We typically use this of modern-day what? Dictators. Right. Dictators are despots. They, they are in charge. What they say goes. I watched a movie yesterday, The Death of Stalin. Uh, and it was an account of what happened after Stalin died. It was a very uh, dark comedy uh, account. Uh, what happened after Stalin died. But Stalin would have these lists made of this person has offended me. They put them on a list. And away they go. They get killed. Just like that. That's a despot, absolute ruler. Now, we don't hear anybody ever connected to the word despot that is good because no human being alone has ever been a despot for good, except for Jesus. <laughs> he even shows dictators how to dictate well. He is literally applicable for everybody. The only despotes, God and our curios, Jesus Christ. Now, I knew I'd be running long today, so I put the applications and the personalizations. I just printed those out. My challenge to you is going to be two things for this next week. One, look for threes. There's sets of threes. And then come up with at least two or three more applications and personalizations from this lesson. Because I, I usually start listing these out at the beginning. And I got to about 15, and I said, I, I can't put 15 in the lesson. That's just, that's just too many. So I decided to stick with Jude's example and do three applications and three personalizations. So this is my attempt at brevity. Uh, and then at the bottom of your handout on that fourth page, there are a couple of uh, notes. And the, the extra credit there, I want you to watch the Bible Project video on Jude. And I want you to tell me what problem you have with it. Because generally these are really, really good. And I think they, they pick 
about three words that they could have done very much better. So that'll be my challenge for you to, to watch and to listen with a very critical ear, to think about what could have been improved uh, with that particular video. So that's the Sunday school lesson for today. That's week one of Jude. We've got uh, at least five, probably six more weeks to go in Jude. Uh, and then next week is going to be about the, the history, the Old Testament history of all these stories that Jude tells in verses 5 through 11. So uh, while we are in Jude next week, we're probably not in Jude very much. We'll actually be in the Old Testament and some other resources as well. So uh, your weekly update is on the table. If you will pray over those prayer requests, add any new ones that you have. Make sure the name of each person that is here today, including little ones, uh, is on the sheet. That way we can uh, get attendance. And then after you have prayed at your table, uh, you are dismissed. So thanks for coming to Sunday School today. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our weekly email. You can do both at OurSundaySchool.com.